Hello and welcome to The Energy Gang, a discussion show about the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Ed Crooks. It's been quite a week in the world of finance. We've had bank rescues and bank failures. President Biden issued his first ever veto, using it to stop legislation related to ESG investing. And the IPCC has issued the final report in its sixth comprehensive assessment of the scientific evidence on climate change. It's warning that current financial flows, and this is a quote, fall short of the levels needed to meet climate goals across all sectors and regions. So, it's excellent news that we have one of the gang's financial wizards with us today. Shanu Matthew is a Senior Vice President and Portfolio Manager at Lazard Asset Management. Hi Shanu, how are you? Hi Ed, it's a pleasure to be back on and excited to dive into these topics. Yeah, great to have you. And it's also a great pleasure to welcome back Melissa Lott, who's the Director of Research at the Centre on Global Energy Policy at Columbia University. Hi, Melissa. How are you? Hey, Ed. Doing well. The rain has stopped here, so I guess that's good. <laughs> Not sure. I kind of like rain. <laughs> Indeed. Even as the storm clouds gather over the financial sector, which is what I want to start talking about today, because it feels like we've had some really pretty dramatic news from the world of banking recently. Earlier this month, we had the second largest bank failure in U.S. history. That was Silicon Valley Bank that went under with about $170 billion in deposits, and it had to be bailed out by the U.S. government. There is, incidentally, an active debate going on about whether it was actually a bailout. I'm not going to get into that here. If you want to take that up with me, please feel free to come at me on Twitter. But for now, I'm thinking of it as a bailout. Then after that, we had UBS rescuing its fellow Swiss bank Credit Suisse by buying it for about $3 billion, which was uh, a lot less than Credit Suisse had been valued at only a couple of weeks ago. And another US bank, First Republic, also has a group of banks getting together to try and prop it up. So the question, obviously, for us on this show is, what does all this mean for the energy transition? Why does it matter? And I think it matters in particular because... To build all the infrastructure we need for the energy transition, to move to a low-carbon world, we need trillions of dollars of investment. And banks are a crucial part of the mechanism for making that investment happen. If the banking system isn't working, if the banks can't perform that role, then we really have a problem. So, Shano, perhaps you could start off and kind of break it down for us a little bit in terms of what's been going on over the past few weeks. What's your take on what's been happening to the banking system and what do you think it means for energy? Yeah, absolutely, Ed. And in general, what happened in Silicon Valley Bank was, um, in a lot of ways, a unique issue relative to that bank. Uh, there was a duration mismatch between their deposit book, which grew really rapidly, and what they, you know, on the other side of that, you know, they give out loans and also buy hold the maturity type bonds. And they actually secured a bunch of 10 plus year maturity bonds at very low interest rates when it was a low interest rate environment. And so what happens is when you have a lot of depositors wanting to pull their cash, as you saw happen in Silicon Valley Bank, you now see that a lot of those securities that are held in maturity, if liquidated right now, would crystallize a, a, a pretty big loss on their P&L. And so that requires equity funding in order to do so, which they did not have enough. And so when Silicon Valley went to try to raise that equity capital, it actually spooked the markets and actually forced it, it reamplified that feedback loop of folks wanting to pull their deposits out. And so I guess since then, what you've had is the banking system now is struggling where a lot of mid-sized and regional focused banks are going through this period where you know folks are saying, hey, I just saw this a top 20 deposit bank go under in the span of 48 hours because everyone flooded for the doors. And so there's a fear that this could happen to other banks. And what you're seeing the regulators and, and the government do is step in to secure deposits and are willing to you know step in where needed in order to ensure the I guess, safety and security of the domestic banking system. 
And so I think when you think about the implications for energy or even other sectors, I think what we're looking at, right, is a period of probably contracted lending activity. And so, as you say, for for industries like energy, which are quite capital intensive and require significant equity and debt capital, this likely means, you know, more headwinds into securing low cost capital uh, financing for projects. And so this can be right, quite challenging, right? It could be a headwind to otherwise, you know, a positive secular tailwind uh, opportunity with the clean energy transition. It also means higher cost of capital, right? Which actually means more challenging economics to pencil, especially in, in technologies where you may not be at cost parity relative to the fossil incumbents. And then also it actually gives a relative advantage to companies that are a little bit bigger in size because they're perceived as lower risk to lenders. And so this could be a more challenging environment for startups, which is particularly acute for you know the area of climate technology. And so, so those, those are some of the areas that we've been thinking about, or at least that I've observed thus far. I think there will be pockets of capital that will fill that vacuum, but it is hard to say you know, how quickly that pace can happen and you know, who those institutions are. Right, because that's really interesting, because I think a lot of the coverage about the impact for energy has focused very specifically on Silicon Valley Bank itself, which was quite a big lender to sort of clean tech startups, basically, right? And they were lending to solar and storage and wind companies and backing those. And I think there's a lot of concern about what's going to happen to those companies specifically. It feels like those are going to be fine, right? Because as I say, there's there's been a bailout. Don't have to call it a bailout. But if you are a customer of Silicon Valley Bank, there is a workout which is being gone through, which is going to mean that you're not going to have to suddenly pay back the money you've borrowed from Silicon Valley Bank. And as I say, those companies are probably going to be all right. But there's this broader issue, as you say, across the whole of the financial system where you're just getting a bit of sand in the gears, basically a bit of a break being put on. As the saying goes, one of the crucial raw materials for renewable energy is money, and that money is going to be in shorter supply from now on for a while because of what's been happening. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's a fair characterization generally. I mean, yeah, if you think about what the the role Silicon Valley Bank played. I mean, as you say, I mean, they financed something like 60 plus percent of community solar. They offer, you know, advanced credit lines to to funds that are investing in early stage climate technologies. Uh, they offer loans. I think what you're seeing now is when there's general, I guess, fear in the general strength or health of the financial institution, you'll probably see less activity go that route. And so it becomes more challenging for the funds or the companies that relied on this financing, um, at, at least as a low cost capital option or a partner in lieu of other institutions that find it too hard or too risky to lend to. And so I think that's fair. And I think we'll have to see how it ultimately impacts. I think it's too early to tell what, what the impacts are. But I don't want to underemphasize that you know it did play a really crucial role as a partner to some of these early stage technologies. Yes, I want to pick up on a couple of things that Shani just said. So you know when we're looking at the reports coming out, and it is early days, okay? So Silicon Valley Bank, I bet we're going to be learning you know more about everything that's going on in the books in the coming days. But we already know that more than 1,500 community solar, battery storage, and hydrogen firms actually received a ton of money in operating loans from SEV. We also know that the bank is saying that it was involved in, Shanu, you said it, over 60%. So they're they're saying 62% of the country's community solar projects. So let's just focus in on that right now. When we talk about those projects, we're talking about projects that often are designed to serve lower income neighborhoods. They're often designed to go into these brownfield sites to redevelop them, to go into places where, you know, hey, this is a resiliency and reliability investment. This is actually the community getting benefit from an energy investment that would normally go perhaps somewhere else. 
Um, or maybe it's a community where rooftop solar really isn't a play that they can do, but community solar is something they can do. So there are some concerns about that. But I've been reflecting back on actually 2007, 8, 9, and what we saw then, thinking about, okay, what does this do in terms of one question? Projects that already have these loans for operating, okay, maybe they're okay. But what happens to the next round of investments that were going to be made? I think it's fair to say that we would expect them to be impacted by this and delayed, if nothing else. And that's a pretty fair assumption um, that just seems like one of those natural things that would come out of this when folks are scared, when they're not sure about the investments, these smaller projects that haven't really secured their loan, signed on the bottom line, you know, got that money in their account. Well, where are they? They probably in a delay, a wait stage as this all kind of shuffles out. That's potentially a pretty scary historical analogy then to say, <laughs> well, thinking about parallels with <laughs> the great financial crisis. Yeah, yeah. I want to be really clear. Got to jump in and say I'm really clear. I'm not saying it's 789. It doesn't feel like that to me yet, though, you know, same caveat that Shano gave. I'm not in a bank right now, you know, living the day to day. But from what I'm reading and the reactions that I'm seeing, um, it doesn't feel like the same thing. That being said, I would be surprised if what's going on right now didn't have some impact on the speed of some of these projects actually getting their financing and coming online. Right. And I guess the other thing to say about the great financial crisis is it didn't necessarily feel like the great financial crisis as it was first starting to develop. It was something where it evolved and unfolded over a period of time. Think about um, Bankers Trust going down whenever that happened in, in February to Lehman Brothers going down in September of 2008, then it really became clear that we were entering a very, very serious crisis. But as you say, given the uncertainty, given the general kind of nervousness that was going to be in the system, that kind of chilling effect, making everyone pull back a bit, making people be more careful about what they invest in, who they lend to, what investments they make, that's got to have an impact. Yeah, and I'll take it up to a, a much higher level, which is when I talk to the people that we work with at the center, but that I've worked with over the past 20 years who are in the banking industry, who are making the big loans, who are giving the capital, who are lending that capital to these big projects. One of the things I run into quite frequently is the biggest banks, they talk about transaction costs with me. So they say, look, if we're going to spend X number of dollars, we need to spend it in one project, not 10 smaller projects, you know, one big project, not 10 smaller ones. So when you think about these kind of mid-sized banks and the niche that they fit in terms of newer companies, smaller projects, still big by certainly my balance sheet when my savings account says, you know, these are massive, massive projects. But in the grand scheme of things and the trillions and trillions of dollars we're talking about deploying in the clean energy transition, these are relatively small things when you're talking about a billion five billion, hundreds of millions, these types of numbers. And so, you know, I I am interested in seeing how this affects not just different projects, but specific projects, the relatively smaller ones, the ones that aren't aggregated up to a level where a really big bank would say this is worth the investment in terms of our transaction costs, in terms of the manpower we're going to have to put behind it to actually get the deal done. And the other thing that has definitely happened is that interest rates have gone up a lot. And obviously, the rise in interest rates is a key factor behind a lot of the strains in the banking system that we're seeing right now. As anyone will know who has a mortgage who's tried to refund its mortgage in recent months, it's it makes a massive difference. The cost of uh, money being very significantly greater than it was 18 months ago. And clearly, that's going to be an issue across the energy sector as well. One of the big raw materials is money. If you're thinking about a renewable energy project, you often don't have so many operating costs. You're not buying fuel every day for it. So if you've got a renewable energy project, 
the operating costs are typically lower. You're not buying fuel every day. Your fuel comes from the sun and the wind and it's free. The cost is the upfront investment that you've got to make. And so the interest rate that you're paying on the capital that you borrow to make that investment at the beginning has a huge impact on project economics. Now, it was interesting, for instance, I mean, as I say, that's true in renewable energy. It's true also in nuclear and looking at some of the estimates for the cost of small modular nuclear reactors, which have gone up a lot recently. And one of the crucial factors in that is just higher interest rates raise the cost of capital. Interest rates were pretty low ever since that great financial crisis and then got really low during the pandemic. That was, you could say, a really golden age for lots of kinds of investment and for energy investment, perhaps in particular, and particularly there, those kind of high, like nuclear, like renewables. And maybe we're just moving away from that world now. And perhaps, as I say, we've kind of woken up from that nice dream. And we're going to be in what is now a more normal long term interest rate environment where rates are going to be higher. And that kind of wave of cheap money is no longer going to be available. Do you think that's right, Shannon? Is that something that kind of the whole industry is just going to have to get used to, which is just paying more for its money? Yeah, I mean, I think you're I think you're accurate on that point where I mean, I think a lot of folks in the last five, 10 years have really been banging the drum saying that we're, you know, in a period of low interest rate environments, it's a, it's a perfect time to invest in a lot of high capex cost infrastructure, uh, because that that's the advantage you get, right? You can lock in that low interest rate. And then like, you, as you said, you know, it's very low capex throughout the life of the project. But I think now, yeah, you, you do run in that issue. Especially in a rising cost environment, too, a lot of times, you know, there's a higher capital cost for, you know, first of its kind type projects with in a lot of climate technologies. Right. That is the case, whether it's hydrogen, fuel cells, et cetera. And so it does just become another headwind or, or again, roadblock, as I say, for the entrepreneurs or CEOs that need to figure out how to make this pencil. It just becomes another challenge. Not to say that it can't be overcome. It just adds on another you know layer of complexity that they need to manage for because, you know, in a zero interest rate environment, there's a lot cheaper to, to get the financed. And now you need to consider that because that, there's obviously flows beyond debt financing as well, right? The cost of debt going up increases the cost of equity and impacts your overall you know, ability to capitalize the business or your projects specifically. So here's a thought I have about this, and I'm interested in, in you, you guys' opinion on this, which is that we kind of had this then historic opportunity while rates were so low. This was the time when we should have been doing everything we could to absolutely maximize investments in the energy transition, in building as much low-carbon infrastructure as we possibly could, um, or at least starting to building it and getting it financed. Um, and as I say, that was a window that was open, and maybe now that window's closed, and we kind of fumbled it, and we didn't do enough, and there was much more we should have done. And looking back with the benefit, obviously, Hindsight's twenty twenty. It's much easier to tell these things looking in the rearview mirror, but we should have done more at the time. Do you think that's fair? Monday morning quarterbacking, I think, is fairly easy when it comes to clean energy investments, which is if we look at the cost of not mitigating and responding to climate change, not actually capitalizing on the health benefits of that response, um, et cetera, et cetera, just keep piling them on. 
yeah, we fumbled the ball a lot of different times. So now we're like fourth quarter. See how I can I can keep going on this. We're fourth quarter and we've got to deal with where the game is right now. The game is we're behind. We're not on track for 1.5. We got a lot of ambition and not a ton of commitments and there's bumps in the road. And so how do we ride out those bumps? This is another bump. It's a significant one potentially because it's providing uncertainty in the place where the money comes from. <laughs> and we need money to actually build projects. Like we need to move money. We talk about non-technical barriers to clean energy deployment. I know how to build a wind turbine. I know how to connect it to the grid. I know how to operate that, but I need to get the money there to actually build that stuff out. This is one of those non-technical barriers, and we're going to be operating in a different paradigm than we would have been if we'd acted two years ago, 10 years ago, 20, 30 years ago. It's just a very different place. Yeah. And I mean, the one thing I'd add to that I don't think we've brought to the conversation too is, I mean, we also just you know passed perhaps the largest climate legislation in, in our nation's history, right? So a lot of these things are are targeted to understand and reflect that we're in an environment that's different than the one that we had the past five, 10 years, but you're, you're, you'll be able to recoup some of that via some of these, you know, generous tax credits that are passed via legislation. And so I think like, again, as, as Melissa said, I think so acutely, it's, it's, it's an obstacle. It's not. It's one that could be overcome. It'll just be a different, challenging part of the the environment going forward. But I think that you know we can't understate that. Like there are, there's a significant amount of momentum. If you look at what the banks are doing, a lot of them have targets around increasing their amount towards sustainable financing. They define that in different ways. But you know there should be increasing pockets of capital that are interested in this type of investment. And then you also have you know the ability to monetize some of these tax credits or other vehicles that you know can creatively fill in the gap there and to you know, get back to a lower cost of capital or, or a higher level of bankability. And Shanu, the final thing I'll add is like you bring up the IRA. Great point. We talk about all the policies that are in the system. We're talking about what's going on in the banking system right now. But there are other pressures in the system right now that are affecting decisions about how companies invest, about how we invest moving forward and what types of different energy infrastructure. Which is a great segue actually into the next subject I wanted to talk about, which is this whole question of ESG, ESG investing, and the kind of anti-ESG backlash, I guess it's fair to call it, which I think is absolutely one of those pressures that's very kind of live in capital markets in the investment business at the moment. It came really sharply into focus this week because of President Biden using his first veto ever in his presidency. Uh, he used it to veto a resolution which had bipartisan support in Congress, but was very much a Republican initiative. And the idea was that it was going to strike down a new regulation issued by the Department of Labor. And that regulation aims to remove barriers to pension and retirement funds, taking ESG factors into account when they're making investment decisions. The regulation itself is pretty complicated, and I want to get into the details in a moment. But the wider significance of the veto is that it really shows how the debate over ESG is becoming pretty political. It's becoming pretty heated. It's only one of a number of initiatives that Republicans are pushing forward on ESG investing. The House, uh, Republicans in the House of Representatives are going to be holding hearings, apparently, on ESG. Ron DeSantis, governor of Florida, who may very well be the Republican candidate for the presidency in next year's election, he's leading a coalition of 18 states that's calling for anti-ESG legislation. So it kind of felt for quite a few years as though everything was moving towards stronger presence for ESG considerations in investment. And now it feels like maybe the tide is turning a little bit and it's kind of 
receding a bit, although I'm interested to get your opinions on that, and maybe that uh, impression isn't quite right. I mean, Shandy, to start with you, one of the things I always think about, and this is something that was kind of fantastic when you did it on an earlier edition of the Energy Game when we talked about this, was your kind of breakdown of what ESG investing actually is. Because it seems to me they're kind of three letters. It feels like it's one of those kind of jargony things often that a lot of people in the general public don't fully understand. And so that makes it kind of great to be kind of a bogeyman, to be sort of demonized, to say this is, you know, woke investing and all that stuff, which is um, the way a lot of Republican politicians are advancing it. But I think there is a real issue in terms of the way that the words ESG, economic, social and governance issues are used in the sense that it can cover a number of different strategies. And as I said, you kind of broke it down, I thought, in a really great, clear way, where we talked about this before, and perhaps actually you could just do that again just to kind of remind people what are the sort of the different types of investing. It seems like there are very different strategies that can come out of that same label of ESG, right? Definitely. So how I think about it, I think a lot of the frustration or or issues around this topic ultimately come down to the conflation of of a few terms. And so if I define ESG from a definitional standpoint, it's it's an additional layer of analysis that appreciates that there are certain non-financial factors, whether qualitative or quantitative, that can materially impact businesses. And so if you think about like a human capital oriented business, such as a bank or a consulting company, you know, things like retention and labor practices and diversity are really important to the success and livelihood of that business. Same thing for natural capital issues. If there's like a mining company or energy company, environmental considerations, pollution, waste, et cetera, are are actually fundamental to the thesis. And so ESG does not take a filter on if a company is good or bad or aligned. It is simply an additional layer to price risk and the investor's job is to find mispriced risk. And so it's an additional toolkit, if you will, to analyze companies in pursuit of alpha. If you take it a step further, there's this kind of concept of sustainability investing, which is the explicit hypothesis that companies that are positioned or structured in alignment with the move to a more sustainable society, things like you know companies that sell solar, wind, storage, et cetera, they, they actually outperform due to you know increased addressable market, increased pricing power or profitability, improved cash flow uh, or durability of the business. And that is a hypothesis just like any other investment strategy, whether it's value, growth, et cetera, thematic. Uh, and that's like the explicit focus on sustainability, which is different than ESG. And then finally, you have impact where there's an explicit objective where you're actually trying Trying to solve for an outcome. And in some cases, that is prioritized over returns or on an equivalent basis with returns. So in some cases, it can be concessionary. And I think the issue is when you bring something like ESG, the simplicity of the term is also its curse, where a lot of folks use that to kind of spread it across the other buckets. And so you have one side of the debate that's focused on prioritizing certain objectives, which is probably conflating with a little bit of the impact investing side. And then you have the other side, which is also criticizing it for not doing enough on environmental um, or social objectives, which is probably conflating ESG for sustainable investing or impact. And so it's happening kind of in both ways where you see this like, you know, I guess a battlefield uh, where there's a lot of conflicting emotional viewpoints. I think the one thing I'll say about the the, the rule um, from the Biden administration um, I, I find it interesting because if you if you read the verbiage and, I, and as you say, like the legal jargon can get a little bit uh, over. The, oh, I don't want to get over my skis here from a legal expertise standpoint. But as as it reads and it's been reported, the rules was to prevent the repeal that allows investment managers to consider ESG. It doesn't prohibitively say they have to 
roll it out or to what degree they have to roll it out, simply to consider it. And I find that interesting because a lot of times the opponents in this case are advocating for free market principles. And if, you th- if I think about a free market principle, it would just say you, you're allowed to consider this and you can do it in whatever medium you do, but it's up, ultimately up to the beneficiary or the, the customer to pick a you know, manager that they feel is adequately reflecting this in, in the way that they think is best for their risk management or risk reward returns uh, as they pertains to their portfolio. And so I find that kind of interesting or a bizarre framing or you know battleground to have given that in general, in an otherwise free market, you would want people to have more information, more data, and ultimately it's up to your decision to decide who's best to filter out the signal-to-noise ratio. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And I think that's really interesting, as you say, if you look into this um, Department of Labor regulation that um, Republicans and others in Congress were trying to strike down, what it says, it talks about pecuniary and non-pecuniary factors. In other words, there was this sort of um, distinction drawn in the previous set of regulations that said you can't look at non-pecuniary factors and you should only think about, in other words, you know, financial stuff and stuff that really affects the returns of the fund. And what this regulation is saying is exactly to your point about there may be a lot of these factors environmental factors, social factors, governance factors that are really important to the long-term financial returns that you get from your investment. And you ought to be allowed to take those into account. As you say, you don't have to. The regulation is not compelling people to do this, but it's just saying they're allowed to if they want to, and they're not being kind of steered away from it. And so, yeah, as you say, I think you can see certainly there's a defense that could be made of this new regulation, uh, as you say, just on pre-market grants. If people don't want to use ESG factors, if they don't think they're important to investing, fine, they don't have to use them. But nor are they being prevented from doing it if they think those are important. And I guess at the end of the day, results will show who's right and who's wrong, right? If if, uh, in the long term, you do actually get um, better performance from caring about ESG. I mean, I think the evidence, as I understand it, is somewhat mixed right on that. If you look back, you know, it depends a lot on exactly what portfolio you choose, what time period you choose, and so on. The question of whether you do definitely generate better returns by thinking about ESG factors, I would say the jury is not definitely back in with a verdict on that one. But as I say, you could absolutely make the case that um, it's a possibility that ESG factors are worth thinking about. And certainly perhaps in the world of the energy transition, and when you're thinking about climate change and climate policy and the way that the world is evolving to address that, then you should definitely think that environmental factors in particular could be moving up the investment agenda. Yeah, I I think I just want to harp again on the point that you made where like the empirical evidence is is rather conflicting because like time periods do really matter. Perhaps if your study ends, you know, up to 2020 or, you know, 2021, I guess, like like where you have a period where tech outperformance and energy underperformance that did really well for a lot of ESG funds that were positioned to to manifest that trade. And then if you look at the last 18 months, you know, energy companies, or I guess not year to date, but had largely outperformed and a lot of ESG funds were underweight that, right? So it, it really depends on a host of factors or like what type of factors you're, you're putting in there. But to your point, I think this this is why there's a healthy debate around it is it's contentious around, you know, what does it ultimately do for returns? And I think like other things, you know, time will tell and results will speak for themselves. But um, it does feel like, you know, you should kind of have the whole host of opportunity for asset managers to take advantage of. And then we'll ultimately see what's best for, for the savers. Because at the end of the day, that's what folks are worried about and concerned about is that fiduciary duty to get the best return for their for their beneficiaries. So Melissa, how do you think about this? As you were 
saying earlier in context of in the context of interest rates, when we're looking at this huge demand for capital to finance the energy transition, there's all these kind of conflicting currents, pressures and cross pressures that are kind of pushing money in different directions. And it's sometimes hard to know kind of which levers to pull in order to get the capital to flow where we really need it to flow. Do you think ESG is an important factor there in making sure that we get the investment we need in that critical low-carbon energy, low-carbon infrastructure that we need to address climate change? I mean, I think that I, when I break down ESG, so first thing, I, at the, we're a global center here at Columbia, and I'm surrounded by colleagues who are from all over the world. And I'll say in different conversations, the E, the S, or the G in different combinations come up in different ways. Um, so Ed, was it you who said this article? It was in Forbes about what's behind the ESG investment backlash by Christine Rowe. Did you say that? Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was interesting. Good, good piece. It was wasn't a really it? Yeah. good piece, and I, I thought, okay, I'm going to take a couple of sentences out of context. Just encourage folks to read the whole piece because that was really interesting. But um, this one sentence that talks about this kind of investment, so ESG investment, which tries to combine financial returns with social good, is utterly commonplace, especially in Europe. I thought that was interesting because Shanu, it goes back to the whole actually ESG investing to catalyze change? Is that the implication of it? Versus just assessing risks that are out there. So, you know, which way are you using ESG? But when I think about ESG, I'm going to go back to our conversation with Emily Grubert, actually, Ed, from the other week, where we talked about if you have critical minerals coming out of mines on the backs of children, when that is a risk for a lot of different reasons. It's also fundamentally not good, I think would be the understatement of the century. But when you talk about these different risks that are out there and how we think about governance, how we think about social implications, in addition to environmental considerations, of which climate change is just one, how I think about ESG is just about assessing those risks and actually putting that into your calculus. So if you're actually talking about a long-term investment and you were looking at investing in coal power is one we talk about a lot, and you're like, actually, there's other risks to this investment that may make me rethink the interest rate I'm going to apply to it. Because as a financial institution, I have higher risks than I might have actually understood if I didn't think about the, you know, air, water impacts of this air, including climate change as well. Um, so that's how I break it down. But I, I would say, like, when we think about the paradigms in which we're investing, it does how ESG kind of manifests in different places um, around the world and with different organizations is it varies quite a bit. One thing that I'll highlight is actually a report that came out of the center by uh, my colleague, Dr. Luisa Palacios, which talked about the impacts of ESG and how it's manifesting and pressuring um, oil companies, but specifically diving into national oil companies, which are mostly owned by governments in different parts of the world with different types of you know social pressures that are on them and how that actually manifests. And these are I'd say to me, they feel like different conversations and sometimes they actually feel relatively disconnected. But part of it, I think, is because of the emphasis on the E, the S and or the G. Yeah, no, I do think it's absolutely right. And it's sometimes come to be the case that thinking about the E part of it and thinking about environmental impact and climate impact in particular has sort of dominated the ESG discussion and has come to kind of obscure those other factors, which might also be very important for investment. I guess, as I said, in the context of the fight against climate change being the defining issue of our time in the energy industry, and I guess in every other industry as well, it's sort of justifiable that that's happened. I know, Shano, how do you feel about this? Do you feel like um, the 
you know, as I say, this, this issue of the complexity of ESG and the fact that environmental and social and government fa- governance factors may conflict with each other creates problems when you're thinking about investment. I mean, Tesla, another classic example, right, where you could say it has this fantastic um, environmental impact, really advancing the shift to EVs in a very kind of dramatic way. Essentially, one company is changing an entire industry, but really big questions to be asked about Tesla's social performance and its governance. So there's, you know, as I said, a lot of complexity there, which is kind of obscured by just talking about kind of ESG in broad terms. Do you think that's a problem? Few thoughts. I mean, I think ultimately, I think two points that were raised that both you both of you hit on. One, I think, is that you know, ESG doesn't discriminate in the sense of like you'll have ESG risks for an EV company, like as you say, or an oil and gas company, or like a solar company. And so, if we look at like, for example, like solar, you, you know, it's it's a social and governance issue. If you had your supply chain that was linked to either the Uyghur Forced Labor um, Prevention Act, right, where you had a lot of supply that was actually held up. If you look in recent months, where there's actually more clarity around how to you pull out the paperwork and be in compliance with that. Like we just hit record imports um, from China in the last few months as a result of the clarity around that. But that is a social and governance risk, even within this context of a, a solar company that's quote unquote, you know, in a friendly ESG environment as you deal with in like the, you know, conflated territory here. But I think in respect, you know, ESG doesn't discriminate against a sector in general, because again, it's a framework to analyze a company. I think what you'll see to your point, Ed, in terms of like what we look at for the go forward is it's a personal belief of mine, but in five, 10 years, I think there's a chance that like ESG as a broader term is is probably considered in in, in the sense of like all investment managers in some way will may, may factor it in. Again, some people may not factor it in at all because they don't weigh it high in their process and others may factor it in really aggressively thinking that it's a really contributor to alpha. Uh, and then you'll have more of these thematic opportunities or funds. So if you look within ESG fund flows, the highest percentage of flows, depending on how you cut it, is typically climate action. And I think what you'll see is more of that. In like the 5, 10, 15 years, you'll have more of these thematic kind of narrow opportunities, whether it's like water, whether it's climate, whether it's social issues, uh, whether it's emerging markets. People will try to find more specific ways to manifest the specific trade they're trying to make um, versus kind of the higher overarching framework. But that's to be seen. Um, That's kind of at least a personal observation or or belief of mine. And do you think the industry has a branding problem? That's one of the things I wonder is that given that it's coming into the political debate such a lot now and ESG, it's a three-letter acronym that a lot of people may not understand. And the question of what's happening to your savings, what's happening to your investments, what's happening to the funds you have for retirement is very, very important to people. Everybody cares about that. Everyone wants to be sure that investment managers are making the right decisions for them for their future so they can have financial security and retirement. People really hate the idea, I think, that their money might might be misused in some way. And when you start talking about woke Wall Street and investment companies pursuing their own agendas and not doing what they should be doing to be careful stewards of your money, that feels like potentially quite a resonant political message and something that could cause problems for people in the investment industry that want to pursue ESG strategies. Do you think that's fair? That is that a real worry? Yeah, absolutely. I think I think it's totally fair. I think like I mean, we talk about the conflation and the terms, but I think one of the things that's that we didn't speak about is I mean, there are, you know, like I think there's players or actors in the industry that 
perhaps may have oversold ESG in some respects where they were trying to get the benefit of saving the world, but also saying, you know, double dipping and saying it actually does not take a filter on the energy transition or anything like this. And so I think that is that is a branding issue to your point. And so I think like you see with anything else, right, if there's like a rapid rise or increase or interest or momentum, or in this case, capital behind a certain trend, you're, what you're seeing now is a natural evolution or shakeout where you have a lot of firms that perhaps were not approaching it intellectually, honestly, or, or seriously will be shaken out because they decide that it's too hard or, or too expensive to get right, or there's too much legal liability. And then the firms that are doing this in earnest or honestly will actually lean into the opportunity because they see the opportunity to capitalize on their relative of competitive advantages. And so you're seeing some managers actually, you know, launch more sustainable funds, even amidst a lot of this, um, the noise going on around ESG, because again, there's this belief on a longer term basis that they can take advantage of that opportunity. But I think to your point, it'll come down to this brand and, you know, their ability to articulate and convey how they're doing it, how it's integrated into the process and actual evidence of that. Melissa, what's your read on the politics? Do you think it's going to become increasingly controversial? I mean, I think that you hit the nail on the head when you call it a branding problem right now. So I think of ESG as assessing risks. And then Shanu's point about, okay, then as a manager of a portfolio, you say, okay, I'm assessing these risks and I'm figuring out how much they could impact the performance of what I'm looking at investing in, you know, whatever that is. And maybe if you're looking at something related to the insurance agencies and how they might perform with time, maybe climate change is huge for you because you're like, all right, that once in a thousand year storm is now in a once in a 10 year storm or something like that. And so so that really changes my risk profile. And actually, I would not be doing my duty if I did not include this risk in my assessments, um, because I'd be putting, you know, the investments that I'm investing in, you know, they just wouldn't be performing as well as I think they should, and I could lose money for people. Um, when it comes to all this, I feel like there is huge social pressure, and you guys were just talking about it, that comes from not just shareholders, but it comes from employees. It's like this this positive feedback loop, actually, I think, in investing in ESG more and more and more in terms of considering it um, in decision-making. Now, how that actually manifests in practice in different countries, um, uh, we'll see. Like, we'll see. The idea that, you know, you've got a heavily actually regulated industry in the United States around banking, right? So if there are rules that say you can or cannot consider something, that matters a lot. And so the branding and the political wins, you know, depending on how strong they blow, could affect how much we're able to factor in these different considerations into investments will have long-lasting impacts on not just retirement portfolios, but much, much more than that. So I will say just in general, one thing that when we do zoom in on the E part of this and zoom in on the climate side of this, and this goes into, I know we're going to talk about the IPCC report, but the evidence is so clear that we're already living in a world where we are, those risks have manifested, like we're already seeing the impacts. And until we really bend the curve, we're just going to see increasing levels of impacts from this. And so for a lot of different investments, not factoring in the changing climate seems like a risky proposition. Let's move on to final thing I want to be talking about today, which is IPCC this sixth assessment report, the final kind of, it's a long cycle of publishing that report. Last one, the fifth assessment report was eight years ago. It's a huge effort, kind of pulls together the work of literally thousands of scientists and tries to present kind of the IPCC's best view on the current state of our scientific knowledge about climate change, what we think has happened so far, what's going to happen in the future, what impact it's going to have, and what effect climate policy and decisions are having on 
changing that future outlook. So hugely important report. I would urge everyone to go and read it. And actually, it's, it's really nicely presented, and they do a very good kind of summary for policymakers, and they do a good kind of summary of key messages and so on. So I think if you're at all interested in climate change as an issue, this is your 101 reading. This is something that, that everyone ought to know about. So I'd, as I say, urge you to kind of Google it and go and look it up and, and take a look. There's an enormous amount in this latest report just published this week. For our purposes, though, and just because we're thinking about investment on this show, I am particularly wanted to focus on what it says about investment. What did you make of the IPC's discussion of it here and, and the messaging that, that came out of this sixth assessment report? I think it's really aligned with the evidence, like the countries that are being most impacted by climate change already and that also are seeing the biggest risks are the ones that have contributed to it least, which is another way of saying some of the poorer and lower income countries in this world. And that is a reality that we need to lean into when we think about solutions, when we think about adapting to the climate change that's already happening and also mitigating future effects, bringing emissions down. Um, Something that I will say that I really appreciated in terms of the different things that came out from the IPCC, again, aligned with the evidence, is something we've talked about on the show. Um, It came through, it was on the top of their press release. One of the things I opened up was like, what's the press release? What did they put out in that four-pager? And it said right at the top, urgent climate action can secure a livable future for all. First sentence, there are multiple feasible and effective options to reduce emissions and adapt to human-induced climate change. So you boil this down, and what it says is two things. You know, the people that are being affected the most by this today are the people who have contributed least to the problem. And so that is something we really need to take into account. It came up in the loss and damages conversation, last COP. It's come up again and again and again. And now the question is, how are we going to actually lean into that when it comes to investments and financing development that is not in tension with climate action in these countries around the world. But the second thing is that there are options. We are not in a place where we don't have technologies, where we don't have solutions to these things. It's about implementation at this point. Now, do we want more innovation? Do we want to bring costs down? Do we want to you know, solve some sticky problems? Of course we do, but we don't need that be- right now because we have all the tools we need to actually start bending the curve and getting us on the path to net zero. And I found that Really interesting how just starkly, bluntly, and right up front they said this in the report. Right. So going back to the funding question, what do you think are the answers? When they talk about closing that funding gap, getting enough um, capital to flow, in particular to developing countries to finance the investments they need, how do you make that happen? So I think we need to think about innovation and how we finance things. We've talked about this on the show before where we talk about, you know, just one example, currency exchange risk. So when you're operating in these countries where you got a tax stolen one currency and then you've got a loan that's in another currency and then those two things go in different directions, that's a massive problem that makes it more difficult to actually finance projects in different countries. So we talk about innovation and technology all the time. What about innovation and how we think about financing projects to actually get steel in the ground? And I, I think that lean into the scale of this issue and saying not, okay, this is a problem, a barrier that's going to keep us from doing it. That's not the question or that's not the conclusion. The question is, what can we do to overcome this? What are the tools that we have or that we can develop to actually start moving money now? But Shanu, I'm, I'm curious what you think about this. Like, I'm curious if, you know, how you view it because you have a different lens than I bring to this one. Definitely. I, I think the, the thing I struggle with sometimes, especially when we talk about uh, things like the you know richer developed nations 
compensating lower income or more vulnerable nations for climate damages that they didn't contribute to. It becomes an interesting challenge of just structure, as I think if you're a richer or developed nation, um, there's probably the consideration that if you agree to a certain amount, that that will become the baseline level amount into the future, given that climate risks and impacts from them are increasingly only going one direction uh, as we continue to warm the planet. And so I think it becomes a an angle of, you know, how do you set up a structure so that like, I mean, you're partially not admitting blame or fault, but also like agreeing to a reasonable amount that you continue to finance into the foreseeable future. And I think that's the part where richer developed nations haven't quite come to. I mean, there's been talks about having a carbon price and having you know, that type of um, those fees from that resulting in the financing that you would send over to more vulnerable nations. But, you know, we've had limited progress there. I think the other thing, too, which I think we're planning to talk about is kind of the concept of mitigation versus adaptation, which I, I love your thoughts on because I'm just less familiar with the adaptation side. But I mean, for for those not as familiar, the mitigation for simpler purposes is to reduce, actively reduce greenhouse gas emissions and adaptations to, you know, financing that relates to changing the human condition to be able to withstand some of the changes from climate change. If I think about those from an investment standpoint, at least like the investment case for mitigation is a lot more clear to me because I guess you're selling some type of good or service that actually is a cleaner version or helps reduce, or there's an active kind of fee stream or return that you can generate. Whereas adaptation, whether it's like building a seawall or social security nets or stronger housing, a lot of those, I wonder what the investment case can be sometimes because they, again, leads to your point that we need innovative financing vehicles. But I think it's challenging from the person that actually has to structure those. Uh, I think in some cases, like, you know, I guess there's like more like disease resistant or drought resistant crops like that is something that you could probably capitalize on from a financing standpoint. But some of these other ones become a little bit more unclear for me. So would love your thoughts. because I'm sure you have had some, some experience with somehow some of these folks have set this up previously. Yes. I think with the adaptation conversation, there's a lot of different layers to that onion. Um, so one of them is actually about how you adapt in countries that have existing infrastructure. So you say we've got a bunch of infrastructure out there and it was suited for the last 50 years. It's not suited for the next 50 years. How do we actually adapt it? And that could be power plants and grid lines and buildings and all of that. There's a different question that comes about with how do we accelerate development so that you can have someone not having to be out there without air conditioning when it's an unlivable temperature? And how do we provide economic opportunities and develop in a country so that you, you know jobs don't rely as heavily on agriculture and you don't have agriculture relying as heavily on manual labor that needs to be performed in the middle of dangerous conditions. There's a lot of different layers to it. There's also the adapting you talk about with, you know, seeds and with farming so that you have things that are more resistant to the challenges that it's facing. But one thing that I'll say when it comes to adaptation is I'm just going to zoom in on actually countries that have existing infrastructure. There are increasing numbers of cities, for example, that have adaptation plans that have not gotten finance. So it's kind of like uh, paying for prevention rather than curing the problem when it happens. So after a huge storm comes through your city, you will fix things. And that will be paid for from a bunch of different buckets, including insurance, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, an adaptation plan is about you know governments actually investing in adapting a city to prevent the worst of those damages from happening in the first place. And that money comes out of a different bucket. And these things can be quite challenging, especially, you know, in a city where you've got a lot of competing demands for that capital. Now, if you go to a country that hasn't even moved up that ladder where you have air conditioning deployed in buildings, where you have a lot of the infrastructure in place for an energy system, at that point in the conversation, we're talking about actually adapting that infrastructure and building it out so that you can protect human health as you move forward. 
Yes, I think that's really interesting. I mean, from what you're saying, Shannon, and from what you've both been saying, really, opportunities in mitigation, in other words, places where you can earn a commercial return, invest on a kind of normal commercial basis, they're certainly going to be there in mitigation. In adaptation, though, it's much harder. And so we have to think about essentially ways to get capital to flow when it's not going to expect a return, when it's not being deployed on commercial terms. You're just saying essentially these are going to be investments that have to be made by the world in order, as you say, to protect from the impact of climate change, to adjust to the ways the world is changing. And you're just going to have to say that there's no payback to that. You just have to accept it and be prepared to deploy money on that basis. No, you're shaking your head, Melissa. You don't agree. So I'm shaking my head, Ed, just because when I have these conversations, it feels to me like that renter's owner's dilemma. So renter pays for the energy bill. Owner pays for the insulation that saves money in the energy bill. Owner doesn't have an incentive to save the renter money. You know, it's just this whole mixed incentives problem. Adaptation feels a lot like that to me, where it's not that we're not paying for not adapting. We are. It's just being paid for through different buckets. In some cases, and in many cases, it is being paid for in terms of human lives lost, which have an effect on economies. But also, it's insurance agencies actually having to pay out when a storm comes through that they didn't expect to come through at the frequency it is. So we're paying for not having adapted. We're just paying for it from different buckets. Yeah, I think it's a great point. And to your point about needing financial innovation as well as technological innovation in order to create the structures to kind of face that problem and to acknowledge the kind of the realities of the way the ways that we're paying for things and the ways that we can reduce those costs in the future i think that's really fascinating and that's something i think we should come back to definitely on a future show is what those kind of financial innovations could be and should be because i think it's a really interesting question unfortunately we do just about have to leave it though for today. But before we go, of course, we always have to have the free electrons, personal things that um, people have brought in. Uh, Shano, what's yours? Yeah, my free electron is a new show on Apple TV um, that is climate related, but it's called Extrapolations. It has a star-studded cast, uh, Kit Harrington, who played Jon Snow in Game of Thrones, a host of just like A-list actors. But um, basically, it's taking place in a kind of a dystopian future where we blew past 1.5C and like what the world looks like in that environment where you still have a like very capitalist society. Some people like are just like, oh, it's already screwed over. So let's do whatever we want. And like are focused on extracting as much value as they can from from the world. And there's like different departments in the government now, like for example, like Department of Sea Level Rise, which decides which buildings to preserve and which not to. And it's kind of interesting. I mean, I will say the show falls flat in something like the second and third episode are a little bit weaker than the first, but it is just kind of interesting to see those different uh, you know, perceptions of what the future could look like in this environment. You have the younger generation a lot more vocal and crit- criticizing and the adult generation talking did not want to admit fault and so kind of an interesting show i think we'll start to see more of this in, in entertainment as uh you know the world continues to race towards these um limits or barriers and so it was interesting for me at least i've been enjoying it oh that does sound really interesting yeah i'm gonna to have to check that out i think i like the climate movie don't look up on netflix i enjoyed that i think a lot more than a lot of other people did so i'm yeah i'm certainly kind of um 
inclined to feel uh, a favor towards this kind of stuff. So yeah, I'm definitely going to watch that. Melissa, what's yours? So I, I will admit that a lot of my reading uh, right now is the IPCC stuff, but we've already covered that. So for my free electron, um, the other rabbit hole I've been going down is actually around e-fuels and the EU's draft rules on kind of how this is all going to play out. This is hugely important. So um, for those who don't know, the European Commission has drafted a plan that allows for new cars to actually be sold with internal combustion engines if those engines, so this is after 2035, and that goes back to all the the car and decarbonization rules, but they'll allow for ICE engines to actually be in the mix if they run on climate neutral e-fuels. So a lot of definitions within that. I'm having flashbacks to tons of biofuels conversations back in the day. Um, but I will say e-fuels is not, I'm not equating it to corn ethanol at all. What I'm saying is defining the rules. What is climate neutral? How do you define that? I think about hourly matching. If you're talking about e-fuels, using electricity to produce fuels in different ways. Okay, are you hourly matching your supply and demand? I wrote some papers about this over the past few years. Anyway, it's a deep rabbit hole. I'm in the middle of it. If anybody wants to join me, please come down here. It's a really really interesting, and I would say highly important discussion. How these rules are actually put in place will define a ton of investments in the near term. Um, so this is one I'm I'm deep in the thick of it. When. That does sound really fascinating. Yeah, that question of how you can count hydrogen production, then which could then go into making e-fuels, whether that counts as low carbon or not, and where, how you think about hourly matching and annual matching of the power demand for this hydrogen production against where the generation comes from. Hugely complicated, very significant. Yeah. The U.S. is going to have to deal with it too. That's probably one of the biggest considerations from the IRAs for their clarity around that because that has huge implications around emissions and, 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 and production of hydrogen. Yeah, and no, a fascinating subject, as you say, and well worth looking at in the future. So look, my free electron is, you know, I always like to go on about how hard it is to build things in America. Um, this is something that's a point about how hard it is to implement policy decisions. The question of the congestion pricing plan for New York City, this idea that you'd have to pay up to $23 to drive into Manhattan below 60th Street. I'm personally a huge fan of congestion pricing. I think it totally makes sense. I think it's a, it's a really good idea. I think it's been a very, very big success in London. Possibly there are wrinkles to it, but I just think London as a whole, as a city, has been greatly improved by congestion pricing and all the various um, other changes that have been made to it over the past 10, 20 years. That example of London has made me very, very positive about the idea of congestion pricing in New York. They've just done the environmental assessment of it, and this is something that's being highlighted by a think tank called the uh, Institute for Progress. The environmental assessment of this um, congestion pricing plan it's more than 4,000 pages long. They had a picture of it all printed out, this great stack of binders. Wow. <laughs> and that is apparently not necessarily the end of it. This is all under the National Environmental Policy Act, which is this kind of bedrock bit of environmental legislation in the US, which does a lot of valuable and useful things, but does also create this massive bureaucracy, makes it possible to have these huge delays in infrastructure getting built, in policy decisions getting implemented. So this is a congestion pricing plan that New York State has all voted for. Everyone's in favor of it. Everyone wants it to happen. But it's been delayed and delayed. It was voted for back in 2019. Still hasn't happened yet. There's a possibility of a delay of up to four and a half years longer if they now have to do an additional environmental impact statement, mm. which just seems insane. That, as I say, this very, very positive development is being held up like this. And I'm not just saying you should just kind of 
be able to go ahead and say, yeah, we think it's a good idea. Let's do it. And <laughs> we'll work it out later. Um, clearly, you do need to study environmental impacts and you do need to think about what's going to happen. But the idea that something can stretch on for seven or more years before you can make a change and you can allow policy, politicians who are opposed to the policy to kind of slow walk it and drag their feet and stop it happening um, as much as they can, that just seems crazy. And so in this whole debate about reform of NEPA, changing permitting rules, kind of thinking about how we streamline the system, something that stops these kind of positive, valuable changes being held up seems really worthwhile to me. Yeah, I will say, uh, Ed, I don't know if you know this, but my PhD was in a bunch of this stuff. So looking at the impacts on transport, on climate and health and how this affects in cities. And I study the UK's like congestion pricing, ultra low emission zone, low emission zone as part of the ultra low emission zone stuff. And then also parking regulations and how that affects how you many cars you would see come into central London. Um, oh, can we just please talk about this on a show at some point in the future? Because I really want to. Yeah, great subject. Yeah, fantastic subject. Like, Melissa, was it was it over and under on your thesis 4,000 pages? Or, or was it higher or lower? <laughs> Thank goodness it was under. Though I almost had to bind it in two volumes because that's, that's how deep I ended up going on things. I think my appendix was like 300 pages of documentation. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, it was okay. a whole thing. Uh, but, you know, oh, PhD flashbacks now. Um, but uh, within all this, I just, it's such a good topic it's really really interesting yeah no it really is well no um we will definitely give you full opportunity to defend your thesis on a future <laughs> show no full. not again <laughs> yes. like, anyway oh but now though we do uh, absolutely have to wrap it up there but look thank you both very much indeed for coming in many thanks uh shannon for joining us today thanks ad always a pleasure and many thanks to you, Melissa. Many thanks to our producer, Toby Biggins-Gilchrist. And above all, of course, thanks to all of you for listening. As you know, we're always keen to hear your thoughts, your praise, criticism, comments, whatever it might be, um, suggestions for future shows. You can find us on Twitter at, at The Energy Gang, and I'm at Ed underscore Crooks. And we'll be back again in two weeks for all the latest news and views on what's next with energy transition. Until then, goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>